Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, BC's new housing legislation promises more multi-unit housing, but where does that leave your local city council? As large-scale provincial zoning, Bigfoot's locally elected leaders. Plus, Vancouver Council gives the green light to speed and red light cameras, but don't expect a tripling of cameras anytime soon. We'll explain why. And the Beatles release a new song, and Taylor Swift is coming to Vancouver. We hear from a local Beatles superfan as he hears the new song now and then, and a Vancouver Swift, he revels in the arrival of the Queen. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. A story that broke in the past couple of hours. The federal NDP will now be supporting a federal conservative motion to pause the federal carbon tax on all forms of home heating. Uh, New Westminster Burnaby MP Peter Julian made the announcement this afternoon following question period in Ottawa, upping the pressure on the Bloc Quebecois to either support the Liberals uh, in voting down the motion on Monday or join the opposition. Now, the reason behind supporting this motion is that the NDP find removing the carbon price on home heating oil and not other forms of heat like natural gas, well, it's unfair. Now, throughout question period today, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev and members of his caucus continue to press the government uh, on um, on whether they would allow Liberals to vote freely on their motion and if they would make it a confidence matter. Take a listen. This Saskatchewan NDP has just voted to endorse my motion to give equal tax-free heat for all Canadians. That is the position of the NDP in BC, Manitoba and Alberta as well. Now the question is whether the NDP will vote against its cash-strapped constituents and in favour of the Prime Minister. So can the PM tell us, was is this vote part of the coalition agreement or does the NDP have the freedom to vote for their constituents? The Leader of the Opposition wants to talk about places across the country. Let's talk about them. 20,000 Saskatchewanians heat their homes with home heating oil. 50,000 Albertans and uh, about 100,000 British Columbians, Mr. Speaker. That is dirty, it is more polluting and it is more expensive, particularly for the predominantly lower income families that rely on this. That's why we're moving forward to replace them with heat pumps. Now, a heated uh, debate and conversation today in question period. It's important to note the home heating oil is less common in BC than other parts of the country, uh, but certainly British Columbians here do use uh, home heating oil, about 39,400. So just under 40,000 BC households use heating oil as of 2020. That was the last year Natural Resources Canada uh, provided that data, although the Prime Minister in that uh, soundbite said it was 100,000 um, households. So we're going to go with 40,000 here in British Columbia. Now, if if a, a carbon tax is removed from all forms of fossil fuels, uh, it will impact British Columbians because 950,000 households in our province use natural gas and they are still paying uh, the carbon tax. Uh, this puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the BC uh, NDP because the federal uh, NDP at this point say they're going to support the Conservative motion. What's it all mean when you look at the big picture, particularly our province? Joining us now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. 
I really wish we were talking about Taylor Swift coming to Vancouver, but I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to talk about this too, Jazz. Yeah, you're, 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 uh, you can join us at 5.30 we're gonna, or 5.15. We're going to talk about Taylor Swift. We would not let that big event go either. But let's talk about this because it does impact the bottom line and does put political pressure on the B.C. government. Now, our carbon tax uh, is handled by, correct me if I'm wrong here, the provincial government. Yeah. Now the federal NDP says, look, we're going to support this motion in regards to taking carbon tax off all fossil fuels. How much pressure does this put on the BC NDP government? Yeah, it puts some pressure on the government where they are attempting to apply pressures on the federal government. And during that same question period uh, you aired a little bit earlier, uh, it was mentioned that there's going to be more help on the way for BC when it comes to that transition to heat pumps. So there's going to be some more financial help. That's what BC has been asking for. But there's a lot of pressure now that if Ottawa starts scaling back carbon pricing on home heating, the BC government will be expected to do the same here. We've already heard BC United leader Kevin Falcon earlier this week call for this. Uh, it would impact, uh, we expect, oil, but also natural gas. And there are a lot more natural gas customers uh, in British Columbia than there are oil customers. So it could impact you know, quite a few British Columbia households if we see uh, that sort of uh, tax measure come into effect. But the more we hear about this at the federal level, the more we expect a scaling down of the carbon tax and really a weakening of the tax that was brought in a few decades ago here provincially and then has more recently been adopted federally. So I think today is a pretty significant when it comes to the NDP who have been a champion of these sort of measures, in essence acknowledging, well, you know, yes, carbon pricing may be important, but it's more important to ensure affordable heating uh, for Canadians no matter where you live in this country. Is the carbon tax dead? I mean, once this is a slippery slope, right? Who's going to increase it after this? If you're going to take it down now and say, look, it's, a, it's a, an affordability issue, it's always going to be an affordability issue because it's hit critical mass. You know, when you're at $20 a ton, $30 per ton, and it represents two, six cents a li- 2 to $0.06 cents a litre, that's fine. But the plan was to increase it every single year until 2030, uh, and that would have been a significant in- increase at the pump uh, as well. Is this the beginning of the end of the carbon tax as we know it? Yeah, the big challenge for politicians will be, you know, how do you judge it to be significant enough, as you describe, on cost of living to remove the carbon tax? And that's a judgment that's going to become very tricky. This was a poor decision by the prime minister in terms of the way in which it was rolled out. Uh, It was hastily presented. It targeted only Atlantic Canada. It was seen as a political opportunity for the government. And now every other province is frustrated saying, well, they're getting relief. Why won't we? And by making that crude political calculation, the prime minister has in essence put the rest of his carbon tax at jeopardy here. And, you know, should it be focused in on individual consumers? Should the carbon tax be focused in on big uh, polluters. You know, when does it become essential to remove the carbon tax on things like gasoline at the pumps? Like all of these things contribute, we know, to carbon emissions and have a negative impact on our um, environment. But at what point does our economy supersede that? The individuals who are just struggling to get by pay for groceries, pay for gas. Because if you start providing carbon tax relief, Jazz, you not just will see opportunities with home heating, 
but there'll be opportunities with the price of groceries because you could remove carbon tax on those trucks that move products. You could remove carbon tax on agricultural production. All of that could lead to more cost of living measures. And, you know, this government's getting it hard to it's getting it hard for them to defend this tax if they start picking and choosing when they're going to remove it. Yeah, I got a simple question for you. Do you think it's changed behavior? And I know it's it's an unfair question. I mean, because I'd have difficulty answering it. But do you think it's actually changed behavior for people? Like you're going, oh my God, no. gas is getting really expensive. Uh, I better pick myself up a $75,000 Tesla plus tax, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was supposed to be I, I the think, issue, right? We know people here rely on their cars. And I think everyone makes choices. Gas is expensive, but it's long been expensive in this province. And... I think you may make decisions. You know, we add an electric scooter to our fleet here in Victoria. We can do that. But we need our car to make sure the kids get to soccer practice or our daughter gets to acting. You know, like these are things we can't use the bike or the scooter for based on equipment or timing or all of those things. So you rely on it. You try to make accommodations. But I don't make those decisions based on a carbon tax. You know, largely those decisions are driven by, you know, do I want to help what I can do to help protect my environment? So the intended goal was carbon pricing would change our behavior. And I'm not sure it's worked in in my case. And I'm guessing that's likely for a lot of people. You know, some callers may call in at some point and say, Richard's wrong. I've profoundly changed the way I do things. But Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that would be a minority opinion. And and if the main goal of this was to change behavior, it hasn't worked. There's other ways that governments can change behavior. The BC government's been making that argument too. Try to incentivize the purchase of electric bikes. Try to incentivize the purchase of heat pumps. Try to incentivize the purchase of electric vehicles. Those incentives, I think, work better than a tax that largely gets buried, right? Like yeah. gas prices, for one, Jazz, it's hard to break apart what tax goes where. It's just tax. And so that makes it very hard to change um, behavior. And heating is the other crazy one. Like it's, you know, when it gets cold, you turn on the heat. And, and you know, maybe consciously you say, oh, well, maybe I need to try to, to keep that base heat a little bit lower to save a little bit of money. But I'm not sure that's for, for pollution reasons. I think it's largely for, you know, how ways that they can try to save a little bit of money on their bills so you can have a bit of extra money to do something else. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thank you. Yeah, just my pleasure as always. I can't wait. Well, more than 50 years after the Beatles broke up, John, Paul, George and Ringo are back together, reunited for one final track that was released today. This, uh, the song, which you're hearing titled Now and Then, was played on BBC Radio at 7 a.m. and simultaneously released on streaming platforms with the help of digital technology. It uh, features both John Lennon, who was shot dead in 1980, and George Harrison, who died from lung cancer in 2001, with new contributions from Paul McCartney, who was 81 and Ringo Starr who was 83 the song will be the final music release possibly uh, the most influential by the most influential and best-selling musical group of the 20th century joining me now to talk a little bit about today's release is our Jerry Mayer Judson good afternoon well, good afternoon Jazz. what an interesting day it is very much an interesting day uh, it's interesting uh, first of all what I've just said in regards to what the, mm-hmm. the Beatles have done on top of of course uh, Taylor Swift coming uh, to Vancouver it's been an 
announced, so we'll talk about that at 5.30. But it, in many ways, it bookends uh, sort of the music industry from then and now. But it's interesting with this technology, what they've done with this new release. Absolutely. It was very, very cool. Kind of courtesy of Get Back, that uh, big documentary with um, Peter Jackson. That's <laughs> was like yeah. Lord of the Rings. Um, stunning documentary. And uh, through technology developed for that to restore all of that sound and all of those songs, we now have the technology to, along with um, recording some new bits, Paul did George Harrison's slide guitar bit. It was very cool, very nice. I enjoyed the song, but don't take my word for it because I spoke with Ginger Sidlarova. She is a Burnaby artist, and you know what? I'm just going to let her tell it. Well, I always love to start with one thing, if I may. My name is Ginger Sidlarova, and I'm a Beatlemaniac. I love it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty cool to hear. Like, I was, you know, I was up at five and all excited, of course. Um, I think Peter Jackson's done an absolutely sad job making it sound like John and Paul are singing it together in the same room, in the same mic. It's definitely better than the last two so-called new Beatles songs from 95, uh, Real Love and Free as a Bird. And this is weird for me to say because, I mean, I love their music like, like nothing else in this world, right? But it's now bookended by two songs that I consider at this point. I mean, who knows, maybe it'll grow on me. I kind of doubt that. But I consider the two songs at either end of their uh, recording careers now like some of their weaker work. Today's um, okay. Now and Then and their first release, Love Me Do, which I have never been a huge fan of. Me either. But I... <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, what else? Um, well, the, I really like those kind of playful nods to previous Beatles songs. Like they use the background vocals taken from Eleanor Rigby, Here, There and Everywhere and Because. And the section where you can hear them using the Because background vocals just gave me shivers. It's, I kept listening to that part over and over because it's, it's so beautiful and it's so beautifully integrated. I was thinking before, you know, I remember vividly where I was when I first heard so many of my very favorite Beatles songs. And I know I'm going to also remember where I was when I first heard Now and Then, but not because it's like so damn good, but because it's a significant moment in the history of the world's greatest band, which is kind of damning with very faint praise. If you had to give it an out of 10 for you personally. That hurts. That hurts. This is, I, I am so going to get smacked around for this, but it's a four. That's fair. Especially you're holding it up against. I mean, if you're comparing like to like, they have an insane catalog with so much good stuff in it. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. it just, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, hearing John again, my God, it's so great. I'm so happy about that. There's many things that I'm so happy about with this, but I just don't think it was a song to end a, a, an amazing, amazing career on. Uh, I, I really would have liked something more high energy. I, this is not a song that I'm going to, turn on like I do with my other like albums or favorite Beatles playlists and just sit in my studio, sit in the room and just blast it and dream along with them, right? And yeah. It's not that kind of song. It's not John's best work and I bet you, I'm, I'm sure John would have loved that they're doing this. I am positive of that, but I do think that this is not his best work. Uh, I think Ginger's assessment is bang on. I think so, too. Uh, listening to it, I was just looking at uh, NPR, National Public Radio, out of the U.S., uh, and their assessment is, quote, there's not a whole lot to now and then, lyrically speaking, 
other than generalized appreciation, nostalgia, and deep wistfulness. Yeah, which totally, I mean, and that sort of captures the maybe reason behind why they would have put to, went back and put the song together was it, it is a feel-good sort of nostalgic little tune. I wasn't expecting it to be so Beatles-y because I've heard Paul McCartney do songs for other things. The last thing I think I heard Paul McCartney do, he did a song for a video game called Destiny 2. And really? It was very big that. and it was very grand. Yeah, yeah, but it was just Paul. It wasn't Beatles. So this was a lot more Beatlesy than I anticipated, which was kind of cool because I got to hear it with modern sort of sonic technology. That sounded very interesting. But yeah, maybe maybe a little bit lukewarm. The fact that they, it was on a cassette tape and they can actually yeah. remaster it in some way with yeah. technology, it's pretty amazing. What I find interesting is with technology today where it's at, what can artists do before they pass away? where they can go on for 5, 10, 15 years after. Oh my goodness. I mean, you look at what we had with Michael Jackson and Escape and all of the ways that we've sampled Michael Jackson. There's a Drake song that samples Michael Jackson from a a thing he did with Paul Anka in Mm 1970-something. So we're still taking bits and we're reusing them all the time posthumously and it's only getting more interesting because now we have all four Beatles together even though we only had half of them in the studio. It's so interesting. Weren't they using uh, uh, Tupac's image and he was singing one of his songs at a concert once as well? Way back, yeah. Was it in Coachella? And it that was. must have been five or six years ago. Yes. Now, could More you imagine now, 10 years from now what the technology is going to be like and how, how what they can do with it? So, you know, in many cases, a lot of these artists that we admire today could live uh, post, post 10, 15 years later. Oh, right? yeah. And, and so it, it is. But I'm, I was just amazed at the technical quality. Me too. It was right? very cool. I hope they do that for us, Jazz. I hope they play this show <laughs> episode after episode posthumously after we're gone. I hope so. Jazz in the annals Joel. of history. Jazz Joe Hall's gone, but you're, you're <laughs> 10 more the best of the Jazz Yes. Joel that's what we can hope for. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. That's our Jerry Mir Judson. Well, yesterday, the provincial government tabled legislation that uh, will allow developers to start building a minimum of three and up to six units on lots currently zoned for single-family homes and duplexes in municipalities of more than 5,000 people. That starts July 1st of 2024. The legislation also legalizes secondary suites and laneway homes across the province and promises to streamline uh, the zoning process. Now, the legislation promises to create what a government calls small-scale multi-unit housing in municipalities home to 90% of the provincial population. And the government estimates that uh, with this legislation, uh, the expected number of new, new units uh, would be at about 130,000 uh, within a decade. Now, it sounds all great on paper, uh, but when you have such large-scale provincial zoning, uh, what does that mean for local councils? On the face of it, when you look at it, Bigfoot's locally elected leaders. Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is the mayor of of a very fast-growing community. Eric Woodward is the mayor of the township of Langley, and he joins us now. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Lots to talk about here, and I know you don't have all the details. Some of it is going to be pro- uh, promised. It has been promised to uh, two um, municipal councils at a later date, but uh, it should be coming soon. But I think there's a broad phys- philosophical conversation here, and, and some of the details are coming out. First of all, your thoughts on this province-wide zoning and what it means to communities like the Township of Langley. I think there's a number of uh, real-world challenges with it. I think mixed reviews so far, as we uh, continue to learn a bit more about it here and some of the implications. You know, as you outlined, the Township of Langley is one of the fastest-growing communities within British Columbia. Uh, We're growing and approving housing, uh, you know, at at twice of our projected rate within our housing needs report. 
and yet we'll be faced with having this arbitrarily imposed upon us in some of our established single-family neighborhoods while we try to build out Willoughby, for example, with about uh, and, and Fernridge with about 2,000 acres of, of uh, urban land ready to go, that this is going to you know have us now also adding density to our established area simultaneously and arbitrarily imposed on us when we don't we don't need that for our growth. You're not on any naughty list, right? Housing naughty list. No, we're not on the primary naughty list, but for, we somehow made it up onto the backup naughty list. So we're expecting <laughs> to have we're expecting to have targets uh, early next year sometime. So is this a question of just capacity for your community that you you've got all this empty land, but you're also you know slowly and thoughtfully building out your community through a significant amount of consultation? And you were on the show just yesterday talking about wanting to consult on 200th Street. There uh, is this an issue of capacity then for your community, just in regards to being able to handle all that, all those uh, applications that may come. That's one issue where we've uh, got significant challenges to deal with infrastructure, schools, parklands within the growing area of Willoughby. But uh, this sort of this one-size-fits-all approach, this sort of sledgehammer to urban planning, uh, really doesn't apply here. Well, maybe it applies in some areas that are built out, like Vancouver or North Van. You know, we're not facing the issue of going back and trying to retrofit single-family neighborhoods. We're creating entirely new areas from scratch, and we're creating that mixed-middle uh, housing form along with that. And, we, you know, if we wanted to create 10,000 or sorry, 10 percent maybe of single family forms that were smaller compact lots, uh, we're no longer going to be able to, to create that as part of our community anymore because now people will be entitled to put uh, four units on them. We would be better off to just have everything be townhouse. And these kinds of unintended consequences that are going to lead, I think, to some pretty inferior outcomes in a, in a community like ours. What would you like to see done? Because the argument the provincial politicians will make is, look, we get so much blowback on housing costs, affordability issues, and we believe, whether rightfully or wrongly, that the bottleneck is at City Hall. You've had years, perhaps decades, to deal with the issue of housing and everything. This, and it's not just a Langley Township thing. Every community is different. Some communities are better in regards to processing applications at a much faster rate. They are uh, cognizant of building the, mi- the missing middle rather than just focusing on single-family homes. That all of this has to be done this way because at its core, local government has never moved fast enough to deal with the challenges uh, of speeding up housing um, uh, approvals. Yeah, I mean, there maybe some municipalities are in, in that boat, but the Township of Langley is not one of them. I mean, we can get an application to council in a matter of months, uh, and then we can get that to construction in a, in a matter of months as well after that for proponents that want to build housing. You know, what's overlooked is uh, in the Township of Langley and in Surrey, there's, you know, tens of thousands of units approved at third reading or final adoption that aren't being built. And so, you know, the idea that somehow City Hall is the challenge in South of the Fraser just isn't the case. And so now to impose this upon us, in areas like Walnut Grove or Murrayville, we're going to create significant challenges in transitioning those neighborhoods. So if you live in a single-family home on a cul-de-sac in Walnut Grove, you're now going to have a, a sixplex built next to you. I don't, I don't know where the school sites are going to come from, the school capacity, park capacity, um, you know, upgrading all the infrastructure to go along with that while we're doing exactly what the province has been asking in Willoughby, creating that range of housing types for, for all types of people and all, all levels of income. Uh, I'm going to go back to my original question. Do you have the capacity then to do with that, deal with that? I'm just talking about just the density, but you brought, a very good, uh, you brought up a very good point, just the sewage lines that you have to deal with. Never mind, I'm sure there's going to be challenges about parking and everything else. That's a lot of work 
to put on your staff? Do you have the staff to do all that? Uh, it's going to be challenging. Some of the timelines that were announced yesterday that this all has to be completed by June, um, you know, has a lot more to do with timing for an election than the reality of community planning on the ground. It still aren't those aren't those timelines aren't going to be achievable for a lot of municipalities. Um, and so that's challenging uh, that, you know, these timelines are being dictated, which it's really no consultation that I'm aware of with the Township of Langley. And so if we try to then address how are we going to proceed to uh, rise to the challenge if this is imposed upon us, I don't see how we're going to continue to grow in Willoughby and address those infrastructure challenges while we also then have to go to established single-family neighborhoods and deal with the same challenges there all at the same time. Uh, I'm just curious because you've been involved with the municipal politics for a long time. Uh, what kind of what do you expect to hear from single-family neighborhoods? Uh, you know, the ones, especially those from the 80s and 90s, yeah. uh, they're built yeah. a certain way, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the Minister Callum has waved his wand and said there are now going to be secondary suites. Just walk me through what you're expecting from these uh, established neighborhoods. I think, you know, for us, we're, we're going to be expecting exactly what's already starting. Um, you know, I've got an email starting to come in already asking me to oppose this, that they don't they have a single family home that they're happy with and they don't want to live next to a, a six unit apartment building. And I think that in some areas of our neighborhoods, that's going to be reasonable. You know, we just uh, also in Brookswood Fernridge, we just completed a, a community planning process for about a thousand acres there. And we're now going to have to redo that because there was a significant number of single-family lots at about the 5,000-square-foot range next to farmland, you know, very far south in Langley that now the minister is going to be quadrupling the density for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to suspend those plans. I think we'll have to have council really consider, consider suspending those plans now. These are the kinds of consequences that are going to start to flow. And I think in the long run, it won't produce the results they're expecting because it'll be more challenging to develop apartment forms or townhouses if one or two lots within infill areas end up with sixplexes on them. We're joined by Eric Woodward, uh, mayor from the township of Langley, talking about some of the concerns um, he has, and many mayors, I think, have and councillors have in regards to the province-wide uh, housing legislation. It really is provincial zoning. Talk about the Victoria bigfooting a lot of local councils. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, 604-280-9898. Let's go to Ryan in Langley. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Jazz. Uh, yeah, so Mr. Woodward is my mayor, and uh, he might remember some of our council meetings that we had years ago uh, called Leave Brookswood Alone. Um, I moved to Brookswood about 10 years ago from White Rock because White Rock was that high density, you know, you couldn't mm-hmm. get like the, the houses. So I wanted a place with land. So mm-hmm. I have a quarter acre. That's what I wanted. Um, so we've been fighting, you know, not fighting city council, but working with city council to keep Brookswood as that single family community. Uh, a lot of us are on septic. A lot of us are on well water. We don't have a lot of the infrastructure. Uh, I'm really glad that you brought up Fernridge and Willoughby because they put in high, high density housing there. And it, it's just a nightmare going through there. Like I avoid that area completely because there's nowhere to park. Their traffic mm-hmm. is crazy. Like, we just don't have the infrastructure. So it is frustrating to see the province kind of stepping over the toes of elected officials. Like, we we elected Mr. Woodward because he was fighting for us to keep Brookswood as that small community, uh, you know, farming community type single family home. And that's how we want it. Ryan, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, Let's go to Cora in Langley Township as well. Hi, Cora. Jazz, hi, Mayor Woodward, also one of your constituents. 
I live out in East Langley, down by Posse Secondary. Mm. I, my neighbors and I, we live on acreage. We live on acreage because we've chosen to live on acreage. If we wanted high density, we'd be in Willoughby. One size does not fit all. Cora, thank you for your call. We have a bit of a connection there. I think that's part of it, isn't it, uh, Mr. Woodward, that uh, you're going to get residents, not just in Langley Township, but many other communities that, look, I've moved here for a reason. This is what I've paid. I've spent my whole life paying my mortgage. I deal with the cost. I deal with big city life. I don't think you have the right to come in and completely rezone my community, particularly when it's coming in from Victoria. Yeah, I mean, usually there would be a process for that. So, like, one example would be in Walnut Grove, was built uh, in the 1990s, largely a Finnish community uh, with a stable school system, even if it's uh, challenged with portables like everywhere is. Uh, people move to that community because it's finished and because it's there, you know, they want that lifestyle. And it's a beautiful, quiet neighborhood. Now it'll be back under construction and post upon us by Victoria. Uh, let's go to John in Langley. Hi, John. Hi there. Uh, uh, Mr. Woodward's our mayor as well. I've lived here for 49 years in the same house, just south of Belmont School, sort of the heart of the original Brookswood, as he's well aware. And uh, my question is, we're on quarter acre lots and we're all on septic tanks. Now, you have to have a quarter acre lot to have a septic tank. How is uh, How are they going to... Uh, override this over Fraser Health. Uh, how, how many uh, homes or residences can you have on a quarter acre lot and handle uh, the, the sewage with septic tanks? And one other question, Mayor, is where uh, on the southern border does Brookswood end and Fernridge start? Because we voted against uh, your last development plan. John, thank you for your call. Uh, it- uh, maybe it's early, uh, uh, Mr. Woodward, but it, like, would quarter-acre lots be left alone, or would that be part of the process as well in regards to rezoning? No, quarter-acre lots are not left alone, but there is an exclusion currently that's outlined within what we've been provided with, that if you are do not have sewer and water services, uh, that, that you would be exempt currently. There's been some confusion about that, because in the presentation this morning, there was an outline that maybe that the municipality would be required to provide that infrastructure to allow six plexes or four plexes to proceed but my expectation is that without sewer service that uh, they'll be exempt in that area okay well there you go uh we've got about a minute left but i want to get our last caller in here uh willie from port moody hi willie hello i'll keep it short i'm from port moody on the naughty list um (laughs) i believe that if the province really wishes to mandate this then pony up for the money to build schools build urgent care centers, increase the size of the hospitals, increase the infrastructure ahead of time. Don't wait for the municipalities to be crippling under the problem with no doctors, not enough hospital emergency care, not enough school space. Um, They have to put all of that in place simultaneously, not after the fact. Uh, Willie, thank you for your call. Uh, Your Worship, any final comments on this issue? I mean, do you think that there may be some flexibility with the provincial government? They may be able to perhaps listen a little bit more and change a few things along the way, although it looks like it's a little late when they've already introduced it in in Victoria. Well, it certainly feels a little bit late on my end. I mean, I I really appreciate the last caller there because we agree. Uh, We would love to see the same kind of housing targets for school targets, for hospital spaces targets, that for those of us that our communities that are growing and are willing to approve housing, uh, we're not we're not treated equally with those that that perhaps are not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening here. 
And uh, we're going to be presented with a significant range of financial challenges if we're required to provide this level of density everywhere while we're trying to build out Willoughby as well. I just want to finally say, like, I think going into established single-family neighbourhoods while the Township of Langley is developing Willoughby is uh, is really unfair and, and really treats all municipalities the same. And this one-size-fits-all approach from Victoria really isn't going to work very well in areas like the Township or Surrey. Uh, Mr. Woodward, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Taylor Swift just said if she's got a blank space, if there's a blank space in any city, they're going to build a house on it. That's what the new legislation is promising, according to Housing Minister Ravi Kalan. Uh, and if you missed it, the provincial government table, uh, provincial government tabled legislation that allowed developers to start building a minimum of three and up to six units of lots currently zoned for a single-family home. Uh, the legislation also legalizes secondary suites and laneway homes across the province. Uh, the government pegs that the expected number of new units that would be built would be 130,000 within a decade. Now, we just spoke to uh, Langley Township Mayor Eric Woodward. He uh, articulated a lot of concerns, uh, especially for his community that is fast growing. They are building that missing middle, uh, but they want to have control of their destiny. And they feel that this big footing by Victoria is incredibly concerning. Well, joining me now to talk about this issue uh, is BC United Leader Kevin Falcon. I uh, wanted to get his thoughts on this issue Kevin, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, you've worked in the development industry. Yes. You know quite, quite well. Um, on the on paper, it looks good. Where are your concerns? Yeah, on paper, it looks good. But I think that this is the challenge, frankly, with this government. You've got nobody in the government that has any skill or background in building any housing. And they're desperate because after seven years, their policies have given us the most unaffordable housing in North America and the highest rents in Canada. So they're looking at anything to try and improve things. And look, I'll support things that are going to work, but I just have to caution everyone out there. If you look at what happened in California, they did this over a year ago, uh, said that they were going to bring in exactly the same kind of policy, and they've had virtually no take-up. In San Diego, which is a pretty big community, not unlike uh, British Columbia, they've had exactly seven uh, new projects that have gone forward under their new law allowing up to four units uh, per single-family home. Why is that? Well, because in part, there's a couple of things that happen. One, on the choice properties, which are the ones that are going to be closer to transit lines or transit corridors, Mm -hmm. speculative activity takes place. So a lot of those folks living in those homes will see an increase in their value, but guess what? they're going to see a corresponding increase in their property taxes. Uh, and so that's something that uh, automatically happens. But the other thing is that for developers that try to redevelop, say that you've got a street with 10 homes, you're now going to make it 40 homes, just to use an example. Mm-hmm. Well, there has to be substantial upgrading of the sewer, the water, the power. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. All of those costs get passed on to the end buyers. It's not going to be affordable. It will be expensive. And so I can tell you just based on my experience of, of you know, being involved in over a billion dollars worth of, of development projects and lots of different kinds of housing, uh, it's going to be very challenging. There won't be any uh, large developers going after. It'll be mostly the smaller, less sophisticated developers that are going to realize very quickly that this is very challenging to do. So I want to go back to your original comments here. So uh, it was implemented, uh, the, the legislation is implemented in California, but in the case of San Diego, you're saying in one year, once yes. this legislation was introduced, mm-hmm. they built a maximum of seven seven, seven, seven single-family lots were converted to That's right. uh, the, so, the 40 units. That's right. Each. 
Yeah, so that was based on a UC, a UC Berkeley study that analyzed, you know, okay, let's look at how we did in California a year later. And so they, they really did a deep dive into 13 cities, the bigger ones, mm-hmm. to take a look at, you know, what actually happened. And what they found was very little, very little take up. Uh, and that's been the case in other jurisdictions that have tried it too. So I, I just think it's really important to understand that uh, the, the simplistic, quick, easy solutions to complex problems usually don't work, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the other problem here that I see immediately is think about a community like Surrey. You know, for 30 years, the, the, all the planning experts have said, and they're right, that the best planning for the future of, of, of density is to try and have that density near transit corridors and arterial corridors, because that's where you want to get people so they get out of their cars and into walking, cycling, and using rapid transit or public transit. Well, the problem is if you just say every single family lot's now going to be a potential four or up to six, six units of housing, well, now you've got sprawl all over the place. People are going to have to drive because they haven't got the transit in place. That creates more traffic. Guess what? You try and drive through Surrey right now from one end to the other, mm-hmm. you will be spending you know a good hour and a half in traffic. And so it actually makes things worse. So I just wish that you know, as opposed to trying to come up with simplistic solutions, they actually worked with the mayors because there's a lot of great mayors out there. Eric Woodward's one of them. Malcolm Brody, Richard Stewart, Mike Hurley, others that are very willing partners to get lots of density built. Um, But, you know, just trying to Bigfoot them, as you say, uh, and say province knows best, especially with people that have no background in housing, that usually doesn't end well. Well, how would you fix it, though? It's all great to say greater density. Give me some ideas. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. How would you fix some of this? Sure. So a couple of examples. Number one, I'd bring in legislative change to make sure that the approval process uh, has certainty and timeliness, because that's really important. When it takes years to get a housing project through the approval process, that adds lots of cost to the, you know, to the end user. So speed means less cost. The other thing is we have to strip out the cost the government's imposing. We just saw, and you know, and I've got lots of friends in local government, they disagree with me on this, but I'll tell you, when Metro Vancouver says we're going to add $24,000 to the cost of every new unit built with a new fee that they introduced, that's not making housing more affordable. We have to look at the cost that the property province imposes through not only delays, but all the fees and the costs that, that, that the province imposes, whether it's PST, property transfer tax, land ta- empty land tax, vacant land tax, all the other taxes that government's imposed all add to the cost. So, but, but how do you pay for that? Like the, their argument on the regional side is growth pays for growth. That's mm-hmm. their simple line. Uh, and they want to move some of the property tax balance away from the average taxpayer. Yes. To the developers, right? And they're right. So Eric Woodward and Langley is a good example. What I would do is for communities like that that have large greenfield sites, they call them, that, that, that the city is quite open to saying, let's build lots of housing here. Well, there's huge upfront costs there that are very, very expensive. You've got to build, you know, the, the drainage uh, catchment areas. You've got all the sewer and pipes, et cetera. A lot of money. I'd be, I'll tell you as Premier, what I would do, front a lot of those costs so that we can get that underway. That relieves a lot of the pressure off the municipality, like Langley. You'd have to Mm -hmm. limit it to those communities that have the ability to move quickly to get lots of housing built. We'd front those costs. We'd get it back later through DCCs or latecomer agreements. But that's how you would actually open up large tracks that could build lots of housing, subject to making sure the municipalities get the kind of density there that makes sense. So there's lots of ways we can work with uh, progressive leaders like Eric and others to get exactly what they need done but you got to work with them you know to, to think that you know the people on high from victoria are going to find the solution to housing is ridiculous you got to work with the people that know how to build housing that's the development community the nonprofit community but also the mayors um they they've got lots of good ideas too
We are speaking to Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United Party. Uh, at the 4 o'clock hour, we spoke to Eric Woodward, the township of Langley Mayor. Uh, their comments are quite similar. Uh, Mr. Woodward is talking about the challenges before City Hall uh, when they're being bigfooted by the provincial government with their new legislation that is before government right now, where they basically have said that uh, people can build build a, a three or up to six units on a single family lot, and they want to legalize secondary suites and laneway homes across uh, the province. Many have asked, well, what's the use of City Hall, quite frankly? So we've been talking to Kevin Falcon, who has worked in the development industry as well. But do give us a call uh, on the open line. I want to hear uh, your thoughts as well. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, the provincial government's going to say, look, there's a bottleneck at City Hall. we got to do something about when, about housing and affordability. Others have said, wait, there's a reason we elect local, official, local officials to uh, make sure they address local needs. Uh, let's go to Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Jess. Uh, I wanted to say a couple things. First, just I joined the BC Liberals in 2009 because it was the NDP that was opposing and the art tax, the tax campaign, and they were fighting against electoral reform. Mm-hmm. And I'm incredibly disappointed with the direction that the party is taking. I will not be supporting it under this leader. I just find it absolutely abysmal. Well, second of all, I have no patience for Kevin Falcon's comments about people not taking transit enough. When one of his big proposals this week was to subsidize driving out of general revenues by taking the provincial tax off the PST, guess what that does? It encourages people to not take transit. So, you know, you still have to pay the fares, but no, you no one has to pay anything to drive. Come right. on. Ryan, thanks for your call. We'll let Kevin answer that. Sure. So we recognize that uh, in British Columbia, we've got the highest uh, gas prices in North America. Uh, I make no apologies for the fact that we said we would eliminate the uh, provincial fuel taxes permanently. That will save up to 15 cents a litre for drivers out there. And I can tell you, uh, for someone driving an F-150, that's 33 bucks for a fill-up. And you do that a few times a month, and those are real savings. And I'm just, you know, frankly tired of governments and politicians that find ways to keep justifying how they keep picking the pockets of British Columbians. But the fact of the matter is, uh, BC has become the most unaffordable province in the country, full stop. And we got to deal with that. Uh, let's go to Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, really appreciate your discussion on this topic. And I really think I agree with Kevin and the Langley mayor that this is the, the BC government imposing its will to appease its uh, voter base on uh, on this issue, right? And um, right now, also, you've got to be really concerned about the property value uplift this, this is going to have on any of us and seniors, because as you know, taxation is based on assessed value, and assessed value is based on best use of the land. So if you can build like a junior apartment building next door to me right now, that's going to drive up my property values. The big solution to this, and I think the Langley mayor kind of hit on it really well, is that, you know, Canada is a big country. What we need to be doing is building satellite cities, Kelowna, places like this. You can have, have offices and jobs there. You don't have to turn, you know, Vancouver and Burnaby into Manhattan-type cities to basically house people. What we have to do is really get out of the box here and start building up other small communities all through the province. Richard, thanks for your call. I appreciate that. Let's get back to that land lift comment. Now, the provincial government has said, look, this is rezoning the entire province. We're not going to see the significant land lift that everybody is expecting. What do you say to that? Uh, There will be some for sure. In in Auckland, New Zealand, where they did the same policy, they saw a 12% uh, property lift on properties in middle-class neighbourhoods. So more than actually they saw on the top end of the market and the lower end of the market. So it's actually the middle class 
that appeared to pay the highest price in terms of uh, land lifts. Can I stop you there? For, that sure. would mean more property tax, a property tax increase next year for a lot of people. Oh, for as sure, well. absolutely. There's no question, and I think some of the mayors have talked about that and, and pointed that out, and it's true. And so, look, I, I just think it, it's important that we try to solve this problem. I am not against people coming out with out of the box solutions and thinking about how we can fix things. But what I get concerned about is similar to their Airbnb legislation. They haven't thought it all through. I don't think they've frankly talked to enough people that know uh, how the business works and they're going to get into a situation of unintended consequences. Um, We've been talking about housing. I got about a minute left, but I want to get this to you. Uh, Peter Julian, NDP uh, MP from New Westminster Burnaby, said that uh, earlier today the federal NDP will now be supporting a conservative motion to pause the federal carbon price on all forms of home heating. Uh, that includes natural gas. Uh, when it comes to uh, home heating here in British Columbia, heating oil represents about 1.8% of all the households, about 40,000. But when it comes to natural gas, that's nearly a million households here in British Columbia. That's right. Um, <clears throat> that's the federal NDP saying they're going to support Mr. Paul again, the Conservatives. Uh, what do you think the provincial NDP government should be doing? In well, yeah, as you know, on Monday, in addition to saying we would eliminate permanently the uh, provincial fuel taxes, we said that we need to eliminate the carbon tax on all home feed, uh, fuel uh, uh, options, whether it's propane, natural gas, or oil. If they did it in the East Coast, then it's good enough for them. It ought to apply here in the West Coast. We made that very clear. They, David Eby and the NDP continue to dig in their heels. They absolutely refuse to give people a break. I think it's wrong. We've now got the Manitoba NDP, the Alberta NDP, the federal NDP. Only David Eby and this NDP government doesn't believe in giving British Columbians a break, and I think that's wrong. Heating is an essential thing. It's not just something that you can use when you feel like it. It is essential, and I think it's wrong that we're charging the carbon tax on that, and that should be removed. If it's good enough for the East Coast, it's good enough for BC. Kevin Falcon, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Well, a motion that aimed to bring in more red light and speed cameras to Vancouver passed uh, at City Council on Wednesday. However, that doesn't mean you'll be seeing the devices in use anytime soon. The ABC majority on council uh, did amend the motion, directing staff to identify high-risk intersections in the city where cameras would help prevent serious crashes. Now, earlier today, Councillor Christine Boyle was on Mike Smith's show talking about uh, the amendments, and I think she expressed some of her frustration as well. Take a listen. The sort of most frustrating and confounding part of ABC's response was adding a big study that city staff should do alongside all sorts of community partners um, to look at more of the specifics. The fact is that we're just not putting enough funding into those improvements anyway. And so for ABC to kind of suggest another study rather than taking action, it's frustrating to me. That was uh, Christine Boyle speaking to our Mike Smith earlier today. Well, joining me now is Brian Montague. He's a Vancouver City Councillor with ABC Vancouver. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jess. Uh, your thoughts, first and foremost, you want to respond to what uh, Christine Boyle had to say there? Yeah, I mean, the original motion just, uh, it was flawed uh, in a number of ways. And all we simply did was put in an amendment that said, instead of just blanketing the city randomly uh, with this one-size-fits-all solution, uh, she wanted to put in about 107 red light cameras. Um, and I'm not against red light cameras, but let's do it systematically. Let's actually, the amendment basically calls to to look at dangerous intersections, determine why they're dangerous and come up with a solution, a tailor-made solution, rather than just uh, a hope and a prayer that mm-hmm. something's, that it's going to work. What's the cost of putting those in? Yeah, and that's interesting. I, I don't think Councillor Boyle knew the cost until I told her uh, in council. Uh, it would be if... If the city was to add the 
the number of cameras that she had within her criteria would have been 107 cameras. They're just shy of about $200,000 a piece to install. Uh, so it would have been about $21 million. Plus then there's an annual $1.2-ish million annual uh, uh, operating cost. And that comes from the city's budget? Well, and that's, uh, you know, I wasn't super clear in the original in the original motion, um, but the way it was written, that was my reading of it, was that she was asking the province to allow the city of Vancouver to install them at all these locations. So right now there are 40 of these cameras already installed in the city. Ms. Boyle has said that uh, these cameras generate millions of dollars in revenue. Does it? Does the system pay for itself right now? Uh, it depends on the cameras you look at. Um, so some of the cameras generate a fair bit of revenue. Uh, some of them six, seven, ten thousand tickets a year. But there are lots of cameras that generate a hundred, two hundred, three, like less than a ticket a day. Uh, it takes a lot of, and these are one hundred and thirty-eight dollar tickets, right? That's what the ticket is for for a speeding ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the value of a speeding ticket is. Um, it takes a long time at one hundred and thirty-two, one hundred and thirty-eight dollars a piece to. To, to pay for that two hundred thousand dollars worth of hardware, and I've, I've been reading that it, all those cameras, the forty three safety cameras at intersections of the city, generate eight point two million dollars. Um, do they make the city? Do they make these cross sections safer? In your opinion, I mean, you've been a police officer for a lot of time with the Vancouver Police Department. In your opinion, does it make them safer, or is it, or is it just a cash cow? Well, I think. In some locations, it could it it could make them safer. And I I try to do a bit of a dive on some of the data that we have uh, that I that was available to me at least mm-hmm. of the forty three that we have in Vancouver. Um, a lot of them, when you look at the crash data over the last five years, it stays pretty stagnant. It doesn't look like it's changed at all. Uh, in some cases, the crash data actually creeps up a little bit. Um, but if you look at, uh, and I think Hastings and Renfrew was one that stood out for me, where uh, there's a camera there, and it actually over the last five years collisions have actually uh, decreased fairly significantly. So that's maybe one location that where it works. But uh, again, a one-size-fits-all solution is just not the right approach. To just randomly put these, uh, these cameras in places and hope that they're going to do something uh, is just not the right way to do it. Let's, let's figure out where these high-risk intersections are and take a really look, good look at why these crashes are happening. Come up with a tailor-made solution. Some of these solutions are extremely inexpensive, uh, like an LPI, uh, leading pedestrian uh, where um, uh, interval, where basically before the light turns green for the cars, it allows the pedestrians to start crossing the street. It's like $2,000 to install these things, and they dramatically reduce collisions. So maybe it's just something as simple as that. Maybe it's a combination of, 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 uh, of solutions. You're not philosophically against red light cameras. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, Miss Boyle was on, my, on on this show a few weeks ago, and I I don't I'm not against red light cameras and speed cameras if they work just like like yourself and probably m- many members of our audience. Although some may have concerns that they turn into cash cows for for government rather than dealing with the issue of safety. But in this case, one could argue, could they not, that we have an agency for that. And that's ICBC. I mean, the infractions are provincial at the end. of the, It's a motor vehicle act, right? That's right. These, this is a provincial responsibility. And uh, uh, Councillor Boyle's original motion, uh, again, suggested that the city take on this task. The city already takes on hundreds of billions of dollars in downloaded costs from both the province and the federal governments. Um, and it's not something that we should be taking on. This should be left for the provincial government. I'm happy to... Uh, to uh, have agencies, city agencies, including our Vancouver Police Department and the Vancouver Fire Rescue Services, participate 
in these discussions on how to make intersections safer, and I think that's where we need to go. Um, but again, it, it's how, how do we how do we make the city safer? Um, uh, I think I, I told you earlier. I said uh, I put it again. If your car doesn't start. Um, do you automatically take it to a mechanic and just say, well, replace the alternator yeah. when it might be something as simple as uh, a connection to the battery? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's look at the problem. Let's not let's not, you know, uh, let's not find let's not uh, prescribe a remedy before we know what the Yeah, I mean, I go the back to the ICBC argument. This is a multi-million dollar organization uh, that we own. Uh, and that provides, uh, you know, service to its uh, residents. It provides data to the provincial government. I'm sure that data can be shared with this, the city as well. But it's 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 an institution that we own, whether you like it or not. We have it. And traffic safety is part of their mandate, number one. You've got the Vancouver Police Department. You've had a traffic department there since ages. Uh, they do good work. They're very engaged. Uh, and I'm sure they would want more resources. Every department does. But they do good work. Absolutely. So we we actually have the agencies that are supposed to be there talking and looking at at, uh, at speeding, and I'm sure they do know the intersections that are already there. So in this case, you're now going to ask staff to study specific intersections? Walk me through what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, well, it wasn't, even, it wasn't really an ask to study. It was basically an ask to, uh, again, just stop the uh, a one-size-fits-all approach and just identify. So it wasn't really a study, but uh, we've asked them to come back to report back in the third quarter of next year. Um, but it doesn't necessarily say that they can't implement safety measures before then, before that re- report comes back, um, so it's an ongoing. Uh, yes, we want the we want staff and and the VPD and Vancouver Fire Rescue and ICBC and all these stakeholders to to look at these intersections. Um, but as they're looking, if if something you know uh, jumps out at them as a safety issue, well then let's address it. Yeah, so, but I want to clarify: twenty one million dollars to install all the cameras that um, uh, Ms. Boyle says should be. Put in, and right. that, that's going to be tax, BC tax, or sorry, Vancouver taxpayers that would pay for yeah, that. Yeah, the right? city of Vancouver is installing them. That's so, Vancouver taxpayers. So, and, and it goes back to one of the things you talked about here: is that your core business as a city hall to be doing it when it is provincial legislation against the Motor Vehicle Act? You got the ICBC, you got your Vancouver Police Department's traffic uh, uh, traffic uh, department, uh, and, and I think you raise a very good point here in that. You have other downsized costs that, that Vancouver has taken on, including daycare, uh, including some other things. Housing. Although housing. Yep. That isn't your core competency. I understand why they've done it. The downsizing is going on for probably two decades now to a certain degree. And now to say we're going to get into the red light camera and speed camera business, it's going to cost taxpayers $21 million, which you still have to find, right? Like, it's not like you have it sitting there waiting for you. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've got to figure out where that money comes from. And and I'll admit, we've, we've even taken on costs uh, for mental health services. You know, we one of our promises when we got elected was to hire 100 new police officers and, and a whole bunch of mental health nurses as well. Uh, it's a provincial, uh, that's a provincial responsibility as well. But we were uh, at a point where we we felt it was desperately needed to have action now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let me be very clear. I spent 28 years with the Vancouver Police Department. My last five years was with the traffic section as mm-hmm. a collision investigator. Um, so I know very well uh, the devastating effects that car crashes have on on people and families. Um, I, I've pulled more dead bodies out of carnage, uh, bodies that have been torn apart uh, mm-hmm. under trucks. And um, I've dealt with... Uh, incidents involving suicide and medical emergencies. But so it it bothers me a little bit when people suggest that that it's all about money and that I don't care about safety. Mm -hmm. Couldn't be further from the truth. My goal in this amendment and in trying to um, improve the original motion 
was to make sure that we're making a significant, like that whatever money we spend, whether it's $2 million or $20 million, it has the greatest impact. Yeah. Uh, Brian, thank you. Thanks for having me. Taylor Swift will be making another stop north of the border as she continues her trek across the globe with her record-breaking The Eras Tour. The pop superstar revealed today that she will be playing three shows in Vancouver in 2024. The shows will see Swift take the stage for three straight nights, December 6th, December 7th, and 8th at BC Place in 2024. Uh, the three dates will be the first time Swift has, has played in Vancouver since August of 2015. Tickets go on sale uh, on November 9th. Now, a lot of us are excited here uh, at CKNW, but no person is more excited than our technical producer, Talia Miller, who joins us now. Hello, Talia. Hello. What a good day to be a Swifty, eh? Well, it's always a good day to be a Swifty, <laughs> is it not? There Absolutely. you go. Absolutely. Um, uh, when did you hear the news? Was it this morning? This morning, I woke up to about five text messages between friends and colleagues being like, did you hear the news? <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Now, um, what is it about Taylor Swift in your mind that is I mean I, I'm fascinated by this whole movement mm-hmm. and it's uh, I just had Kevin Falcon and lead the BC United party and uh, he's got two young daughters uh, one is 13 I think the other one is 10 and uh, he signed up for tickets this morning amazing right the guy who wants to be premier uh, was signing up his daughters <laughs> had him already signing up and he was telling me about how excited they were watching Taylor Swift at the movie at, the, at her concert movie oh I love that right and they're dancing and then the hall and what is it about what is the pull of Taylor Swift <sighs> Jazz, I don't think we have enough time to go into all the details, but for me specifically, she has just, her music has always been there for me. She hypes me up. She helps me when I'm feeling down. And I think this concert has just turned into the world event you got to attend now, you know? Mm-hmm. Like everyone's going to go. If you got tickets, would you go? I would actually. I, I think for the phenomena, mm-hmm. I think my wife See would love it. See what it's all about? Yeah, and I would drag my son there who's a diehard Drake fan. <laughs> and so he's he's posing this morning. I wouldn't go to that. He'd go to that. I I, think, I'd make him go. I mean, there's something about the atmosphere. I mean, we, I went to the Seattle uh, night one, right? And yeah. there's just something about being in that room. Everyone knows every single song, every single lyric. At some points, you couldn't even hear Taylor saying because you were surrounded by people screaming the lyrics. Which do we have any audio of you there? Oh, we do have a little bit. I think it's the first one, Stephen? Question mark. Second. All right, perfect. Here we are. My goal is that after tonight, you think about the memories that we made here tonight on this beautiful Saturday evening. That is amazing. I mean, this it it seems like just and what I hear, what I love about it is everybody feels very safe there. Very, oh, yeah. uh, it's 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 big one big family, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, as you can see, I'm wearing my tour shirt today yeah. as in celebration. And I was actually at my other job this morning, and as I was putting some stuff away, somebody stopped me and just said. Did you hear the news? I love your shirt. Um, we were talking about the 1989 re-release that happened last yeah. Friday. It, there's just such a community that happens. Like, you know, you see another Swifty in the street and you kind of point at each other and you just have a, a good understanding. <laughs> we're joined by our contributor, Jeremy, Jerry Mary Judson. Uh, are you a Swifty? No, 
but I'm not anti Swift. I am fully Swifty neutral. Yes. I am Swiftsirland on this issue, if you will. <laughs> and I've even on Talia's behalf, yeah. I yes. have gone before because you could not go to acquire the fun little popcorn bucket and drink bucket, the, the drink mm-hmm. cup, the Eras one. Yeah. So I did go to Cineplex Metro Town on my way home and went and got the got the popcorn bucket for her and the little drink cup because when you went to see your movie, yes, they were gone, right? They were abs- they were sold out by the time I would have gone. Oh wow! So Jerry's a true friend. Uh, would you go? <laughs> you though, heard Jerry? it here first. Would I go? I think I would go with Talia because yeah. I love and support my friend. I don't know that I would go on my own volition, though. I don't know if there's enough for me there. Unfortunately, Talia, I feel so bad. Talia is so much energy. Yes. That alone. It would be so would good. I want, I, want to watch, I want to watch Talia at the tour. That's yeah. what I want. It, it's a different person, guys. Just so, <laughs> just so you know. This is the calm, tame version. Yeah. Oh, you should. I mean, I you'll was, lose it. I, absolutely. I mean, I like was, three hours of losing it. Three hours of lo- of screaming, crying, dancing, taking yeah. breaks, water breaks, sitting down for a couple of minutes. Like it was the whole thing at Seattle. But uh, I, uh, I was gonna ask. No, so I got Stephen here as well. Stephen, I'm not sure you, I'd call you the resident Drake fan, but you're a hip hop fan, obviously. Whoa. Would you Would you go to Taylor Swift? So here's the thing, Jazz. Okay, uh, here we go. First one. <laughs> So, first of all, when the Ares tour was out, I was like, okay, you know what? I don't listen to Taylor Swift that much. I appreciate a few songs, um, but I was just more into hip-hop. Like, your son loves Drake. Yeah. I went to the same Drake concert, and then I watched the movie. Oh, my God, Mr. Joe Hall. I have been converted into this new religion. Really? Uh, yes. I am a, a newborn Swifty, and that... Okay, that movie really justifies why it's worth going. Whether or not you're a Taylor Swift fan, I think I can say this with full honesty. You have to go to that show. So what was it about the movie that just got you so engaged? Um, well, I first of all, I could feel the excitement of the crowd by watching the movie, but also everybody around me. And people started doing like a cult dance in front of the theater, which is great. Uh, but once you start hearing, like, you can just feel and see the connection of the fans and Taylor Swift, like the lyrics that she uses, how she connects with her audience, the stories that her music tells, even the way they set up the show, like hmm. each era is uh, like a different part of her life or it just teaches like each song has like a lesson to it. And I was just hooked. I was like, oh, my God, I feel everything you're feeling right now. <laughs> and I'm sold. Jazz, I'm sold. Uh, how many dudes were at the theater? I'm just curious. <laughs> I just want to know. Uh, I think I would like to estimate that I am basically one fifth of the dudes in the theater. Uh, I didn't turn and look back. I was just too focused on Taylor okay. Swift herself. No, I'm just curious. I know, I know when you watch the concert footage uh, and tell you, you'd be the expert here. Mm-hmm. A lot of dads there, a lot of husbands there, boyfriends. Yes. Like it's, it is, uh, and I never hear anybody go, oh God, I got dragged to the Taylor Swift concert. Everybody's very happy going. They were having the time of their lives. You know, there were just smiles in the venue at the theater. There was lots of men there, I can say. Yeah. Um, and the, everyone was just having a good time. Well, I uh, am just rooting for you. I, I uh, signed up as well. And uh, mm-hmm. if, if I can, if somebody here or out there can get some extra tickets for Talia, please do so, you know, for sure. That would be amazing. <laughs> Show field trip.
<laughs> you know what? We're all going to be taking the next day off if we all get to go. It'll be huge. Well, if my boss is listening, I will need the week before off to mentally prepare if I do get the tickets. Did just you did you up. actually need time? I'm just curious. Like when you went to Seattle. Yes. Like were you it you must have just been like ready to explode. Uh, you know, it took me a little bit to realize it was happening until we like crossed the border and then we got there and then the moment the lights dimmed and you start hearing the tour opening sounds. Yeah. Oh, chills, Jazz. Literal we chills. We do have the audio for that there, too. Can you play that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no other artist who can do that. Oh, no one. Like, I don't think Beyonce couldn't do that. Like, I mean, she's got diehard fans. I don't want to annoy any Beyonce fans out there and start a beef here. But she's not at this level. She may have been a few years ago. I don't know. But uh, Taylor Swift is, that's stratosphere now. She is the music industry right now, for sure. Actually, that's the best way to put it. She She is is the the music industry. There you go. Talia, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.